This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. So good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Good afternoon. Welcome to the 2016 Ronald H. Coe's Lecture uh, in Law and Economics. The lecture was founded in 1992 in honor of Ronald Coase, the Clifton R. Musser Professor of Law and Economics. Professor Coase joined our faculty in 1964 and remained a member of the faculty, uh, eventually taking emeritus status until his death in 2013. In true University of Chicago style, Professor Coase was always intellectually curious and always intellectually engaged. At age 100, he was still publishing. Uh, in 2010, he published a new book, How China Became Capitalist, co-authored with Wang Nin. Professor Coase's most famous work, The Problem of Social Cost, published in 1960 in the Journal of Law and Economics, is familiar to all University of Chicago law students, or it should be. In fact, I think it's familiar to all law students all across the country, no matter where they attend. It, of course, grapples with the problem of externalities, and it contains the idea that eventually became known as the Coase Theorem. Happily for lawyers, law students, and law professors everywhere, transactions costs are rarely zero. Professor Coase is also well known for his 1937 article, The Nature of the Firm, which considers why some economic activity occurs within firms, and some economic activity occurs within markets. In 1991, Professor Coase received the Nobel Prize in Economics, making him the first law professor to receive a Nobel Prize in Economics. The Coase Lecture honors Professor Coase and his contributions by creating an occasion for a member of the faculty to speak on a topic in law and economics. And I'm delighted that today's lecture is Professor Damika Dhammapala. Professor Don Mappala is the Julius Krieger Professor of Law. He serves on the boards of a number of scholarly societies, including the American Law and Economics Association, and he recently became a co-editor of the Journal of Law and Economics. He obtained his undergraduate degree at the University of Western Australia and obtained his PhD in economics from the University of California at Berkeley. In fact, his PhD thesis was awarded the National Tax Association's Outstanding Doctoral Dissertation Award. Prior to joining the law school, Professor Dhammapala taught at the College of Law at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. His extraordinary scholarship spans the fields of taxation, economic analysis of law, of course, and corporate finance and governance. Among the topics that Professor Dhammapala's research has considered is how the differential tax treatment of death across, across jurisdiction leads to distortions in the patterns of ownership in multinational corporations. He's also researched topics such as how the particular features of corporate governance, such as board independence, mandatory disclosures, and the power of audit committees, affects the value of firms. Professor Dhammapala's topic today is the credibility revolution in law and economics. The topic is in very much in keeping with the tradition of the Coase Lecture, in 1992, the very first Coase Lecture was delivered by our then colleague Alan Sykes on the topic in Introduction to Regression Analysis. So today we'll move beyond the introduction and we will welcome or despair the revolution. Please join me uh, in welcoming Professor Dhammapala. 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Dean Miles, for that very kind introduction. Uh, it is indeed an honor to, to deliver the, this year's COOS lecture um, and to join uh, an illustrious line of, of um, scholars who have, who have uh, given this lecture. Um, it should be noted that this, uh, the, the COOS lecturers include Ronald COOS himself, who delivered uh, not the first, but the, the 17th COOS lecture in 2003. Um, According to those who were present, Coase expressed a certain amount of puzzlement as to, uh, as to why he was given this task. He, he, he apparently said, uh, any lecture I give is a Coase lecture. <laughs> uh, and he also felt a little bit of uh, awkwardness at uh, the fact that one of the purposes of this lecture series is to honor Ronald Coase. <laughs> but uh, we should not feel any discomfort about doing so today. So my topic is uh, what, what I will uh, call the credibility revolution in empirical law and economics. Um, and what it uh, will introduce is a set of tools that has emerged in recent years. Um, arguably, this, uh, these tools hold the promise of uh, fulfilling a prophecy of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. in his uh, influential 1897 essay, The Path of the Law. You may recall that he said, uh, for the rational study of the law, um, he, he argued the future belonged in part to those who had mastered statistics and economics, which is very much the intersection of what I'm going to talk about. Um, so as, as many of you are aware, uh, law and economics began as a primarily theoretical exercise, um, establishing a framework uh, that, that could shed light on the impact of law on human behavior and on the content of legal doctrines. Um, both of which, of course, are very important, uh, though I will focus a little bit more on the former because most of the uh, applications of, uh, of empirical analysis have, have been on, on the first of these. Um, so th this type of analysis, of course, inescapably leads to empirical questions. That is, it raises questions of how much law affects behavior, for example, in a particular context. Um, and so the, the, such questions call um, inescapably for empirical analysis. Um, and one might have thought that early law and economic scholars were in a fortunate position in terms of answering those types of questions because um, they could draw on an extensive set of empirical tools, indeed on an entire subfield of economics uh, devoted to, st to statistical methods known as econometrics. However, in the early days of law and economics, uh, econometrics uh, was held in, in some, some disrepute. Um, a prominent econometrician, Edward Lemer, um, posed the question of how should we take the, the con out of econometrics? Um, and um, he, he said, um, he, he observed that, that hardly anyone takes data analysis seriously, or perhaps more accurately, hardly anyone takes anyone else's data analysis seriously. Um, around the same time, Sir David Henry of Nuffield College, Oxford, uh, questioned whether, whether econometrics was really a science or whether it was more akin to alchemy. Uh, th their concerns reflected widespread dissatisfaction with empirical economic research and with the, with the credibility of the findings of this, of this research. Um, <clears throat> more recently, however, uh, Applied uh, empirical economics has undergone what uh, the, uh, the economists Joshua Angrist and Jörn Stefan Pischke have described as a credibility revolution. 
um, particularly since the 1990s. Um, this, so this attitude has been transformed within economics in recent years um, through primarily the, um, a, a greater attention to empirical design and, and causal inference um, and the, the use of experimental and quasi-experimental methods. Um, perhaps paradoxically, this has been accompanied by uh, less attention being paid to sophisticated statistical techniques. Rather, um, the emphasis has, has shifted to thinking carefully about how variation is generated in the real world. Um, and this, I, I believe, uh, creates a particularly strong congruence with the focus of law and economics. Um, so, um, uh, in particular, there's this very powerful analogy to randomized trials, uh, that, uh, then the division of, uh, of um, and then the division between treatment and control groups has been a particularly powerful metaphor in this, uh, in this revolution. Um, so what I, what I will do is provide a survey of these developments um, uh, as they have been reflected in empirical law and economic scholarship, um, and I will illustrate them with a variety of examples. Um, a few of, of these will draw on my own work, uh, and I should say at the outset that these are chosen not necessarily because of their quality uh, or value, but simply because I happen to be familiar with them. Um, and so I, I will begin by outlining two important pioneering uh, empirical studies in law and economics, uh, both of which were conducted here at the University of Chicago. The first of these uh, was um, George Stigler's work on the regulation of securities markets, um, George Stigler being the 1982 Nobel Laureate in Economic Science um, and uh, a professor at the, uh, at the Graduate School of Business across the Midway. I think in, I believe in that direction, but I'm directionally challenged, so <laughs> we get that wrong. So um, the second is uh, a study by Isaac Ehrlich uh, uh, the, at, the, at the time of the Department of Economics on the deterrent effect of capital punishment. Um, so the first of these, um, and I should say before, before I start that uh, I will contrast their work with the way that later scholars have approached the same questions uh, but none of this is intended to disparage the, these pioneering contributions, which have shaped the, um, shaped the field and um, framed the kinds of questions that, that we still ask today. Um, so George Stigler posed um, a question that nowadays seems obvious with regard to the securities laws of the 1930s. So as you know, uh, in the 1930s, Congress enacted uh, the, the Securities Acts that created a regime of, of federal securities regulation uh, based on mandatory disclosure. And um, uh, George Stigler posed the question of whether, whether this, this type of regulation increases the value of firms, or in other words, the amount that investors are willing to pay for shares, uh, which today seems obvious but had not previously been systematically investigated. Um, his approach to doing so was to compare the abnormal returns of new issuers, that is, the, their returns relative to, to a market baseline, um, in, a, in two periods, one before and one after the enactment of the securities laws. Um, so his results were, uh, were these. Um, uh, what we, um, let me just focus on one, one particular. Um, so our, what he found was that 
Um, these new issues performed about equally well, or rather more accurately, they performed about equally poorly um, in both periods. Uh, about a year, so a year after issuance, uh, they underperformed the, the, the market by about 20% in each of these two time periods. Uh, and so these, these abnormal returns were quite similar. Um, here is my attempt at a graphical representation of his results. So imagine that that, uh, that vertical line represents the enactment of the securities laws. Um, that's the market return in the, in the preceding period. Um, that's the, the, the green line is the, uh, the um, performance of new issues and the difference is the abnormal return. Uh, we can do this, uh, the same thing afterwards. Uh, he found those abnormal returns to be very similar and in his view, um, this casts doubt on the value, value of securities regulation. From today's perspective, however, there were a number of uh, shortcomings to this, uh, to this analysis. The, the most um, fundamental is the lack of a control group. Um, so, uh, for instance, of firms that were not subject to the securities laws. So if there were a, a hypothetical set of such firms uh, in the, in the post-reform uh, period, uh, conceivably they may have performed even worse. Um, in addition, the um, securities laws may have influenced the baseline market value uh, in, the, in the period after the Securities Act. Um, and his approach was not well suited to uncovering uh, that type of effect. Um, so uh, despite these shortcomings, the question that Stigler posed continues to be uh, of great importance. And uh, later on, new opportunities arose to more credibly uh, study the impact of securities regulation on firm value. In 1964, Congress uh, enacted um, a set of amendments that, that extended the reach of the securities laws uh, to um, many but not all issuers that traded over the counter, that's to say not on an exchange. Um, and um, two studies in particular have, have focused on this, on this episode, uh, one by Michael Greenstone, who is now the, the economics department across the Midway, um, and his co-authors, and another by Alan Farrell of Harvard Law School. Um, so the, in, this, in this episode, uh, exchange-traded issuers uh, were unaffected by these amendments, and so they serve as a natural comparison group uh, in, this, in this type of study. Uh, the the, the um, disadvantage, though, is that price data doesn't exist for over-the-counter firms in any easily accessible form. So this involved a considerable amount of hand collection by uh, the research assistants of these, of these scholars. Um, so um, here is uh, here's Greenstone et al.'s results. Um, uh, the, these amendments were enacted in August of 1964, and the vertical lines in this graph represent the period over which they, they entered into force. Um, and what we see is a divergence in the returns for, um, for over-the-counter firms that were, that were becoming subject to these, these rules relative to exchange-traded firms. Um, in, in, in all, um, the authors find, find large positive ret abnormal returns of up to 22% for the firms that um, became newly subject to securities laws. Moreover, Alan Farrell found a decline in volatility for over-the-counter firms uh, relative to the, the control group of listed firms. Um, thus, um, when using these, these uh, more 
these more credible um, comparison groups, uh, it, it does appear that securities law is valuable to firms. Right, so to continue with the story, in, in subsequent years, um, Congress enacted additional laws um, relating to, to securities markets. The Sarbanes-Oxley legislation of 2002, uh, for instance, imposed extensive new obligations on firms, uh, including um, obligations related to their internal controls over financial reporting, known as Section 404B. Um, these uh, new obligations led to concern among policymakers that um, uh, regulation had become too burdensome, leading to what is uh, known as the, the Jump Starter Business Startups Act, uh, or Jobs Act of 2012. Now, you, you will note that here Congress is following a venerable tradition of, um, in, in which the titles of bills or their, the, or their acronyms um, broadcast politically popular concepts, such as, such as jobs. Um, for those of you who are familiar with uh, the television comedy series, Yes, Prime Minister, Sir Humphrey Appleby uh, makes, makes a rather similar remark with regard to the titles of government reports. Um, so the, the Jobs Act uh, created a new class of, uh, of public corporations known as emerging growth companies, or EGCs, uh, that enjoyed, or that, that were subject to reduced disclosure and compliance obligations for a five-year um, initial period, including exemptions from uh, Section 404B that I mentioned before. Uh, there were two primary criteria to be an EGC. One was having less than a billion dollars of revenue, and the other was uh, issuing first issuing securities to the public after December 8th of 2011. Uh, so the, this was, the application of this, uh, uh, this, this rule was, was, was uh, partially retroactive. Um, here is a timeline of the um, events surrounding, the, uh, surrounding the, this, uh, this act. Uh, most importantly, on March, uh, from March 1st of 2012, it was known to the market that if the legislation were enacted, um, it would be backdated, its application would be backdated to December 8th of 2011. Um, subsequently, um, the House passed, uh, passed, a bill, um, by, by large, passed the bill by a large majority, uh, but then uh, opposition began to grow. The New York Times described this as a terrible package of bills, um, apart from which, you know, this, 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 seemed, uh, this seemed quite positive. Um, they, uh, on March 15th of 2012, a major um, new development occurred in which the Senate Majority Leader, Senator Reid, um, who had previously been lukewarm about this act, um, described it as a measure the Senate should pass expeditiously and pass, in, should, should consider expeditiously and pass in short order. Um, at that point, it became much more likely to pass, and uh, thereafter, the, the bill uh, proceeded on its merry way through the through the House, Senate, and presidential signature. So, in some in a forthcoming article with Vic Kanner of the University of Michigan, we use these two different thresholds: the, the billion dollars of revenue and the uh, December eighth, twenty eleven date, to um, set up an empirical design of the following type. Um, uh, we uh, classify, we find uh, data on firms that, that went public in this, uh, in the, over the relevant period. So the EGCs here 
uh, in, this, in this quadrant here, um, where we have uh, between 25 and 41 firms, depending on the exact date. Um, and then we um, uh, compare those to a group of firms that went public in the months immediately before December 8th of 2011. Um, here is a, here is a um, graph showing the, um, the abnormal returns on the, across those days for the two groups of firms. Um, the treatment firms that were affected by the reduced disclosure obligations in a color that you know, one, might, one might call royal blue. Um, the, the control firms are in a, in a uh, color that one might call University of Chicago maroon. Um, so right around March 15th, um, we see, uh, we see a, a positive abnormal return for the treatment firms. Um, and so th what this suggests is that the market res responded favorably to these reduced disclosure obligations. So how does that fit into this wider story? Well, it seems from, these, from the earlier studies I've described that um, securities law is very valuable to firms relative to a baseline of little or no regulation, uh, but it is possible to have too much of a good thing. Um, and so relative to a baseline of very extensive regulation, it is possible that, um, the, that investors may react favorably to, to um, reductions in, in uh, disclosure obligations. Um, so now um, let's turn to, uh, to the second of the two pioneering studies. Um, Isaac Ehrlich uh, was writing in the mid-1970s. The context was the um, Supreme Court's uh, Furman decision, which, uh, which, found, uh, which, which ruled that existing death penalty statutes were unconstitutional, uh, and a subsequent Gregg decision, um, which upheld certain death penalty statutes uh, in 1976. Now, although Ehrlich's results were not directly relevant to the legal questions considered in these cases, uh, the Solicitor General, Robert Bork, cited Ehrlich's work in, um, uh, before the Supreme Court, um, and certainly the, um, the finding that, uh, the, the claim that, uh, that he had of, of each execution deterred eight murders was of, of, of great public interest at the, at the time. Um, so, um, he relied on time series analysis, that is, national level uh, analysis at the national level of homicide, homicide rates and executions over time, um, in the, in the in particularly in the, in the 1960s, um, to make his case. This was this was his sample period, and you can see that a negative relationship between the execution rate and the homicide rate uh, is apparent in the in the, the latter part of that period. Um, it is much less apparent if you look at the entire, at, 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 a, at a much longer sample period. Um, as was pointed out by a panel of experts uh, convened by the National Academy of Sciences to critique um, Ehrlich's work. Now, you might think uh, that, uh, the students among you might, at least might think that the, the researcher's worst nightmare is to have a panel of experts assembled uh, by the National Academy of Sciences to critique one's work um, it's not in, that's not completely clear, though. Scholars strive for influence, and it would arguably be worse to be completely ignored than to be, than to be condemned in this way. Um, there is a saying among scholars that, that any citation is a good citation. Um, now, they, however, the, the National Academy of Sciences did not highlight um, what we would today view as the major flaw in this analysis, which was the absence of a control group. Um, 
So um, in a later in later work, um, D Donahue and, and Wolfers um, used Canada as a as a control or a comparison um, uh, where they looked at um, homicide rates in the United States and Canada uh, over various periods during which um, uh, the death penalty, the availability of the death penalty, varied in each country. Uh, and what they found was, was that the US and Canadian homicide rates moved very much in tandem regardless of the uh, availability of the death penalty. In other words, it's very difficult to detect any deterrent effect here when uh, using a credible control group. Um, <clears throat> so this, uh, this is, uh, this, the importance of control groups then is as an important lesson from, uh, from what, we've, uh, what we've just discussed. Um, note also that much of this variation, as I mentioned before, is based on changes in the law. So law and economics um, is, is thus in the position of playing quite a central role potentially in uh, the credibility revolution, not just in, um, within law and economics narrowly, but much more, much more broadly. Um, so in the remaining time, um, I will um, uh, introduce a few examples of different methods of causal inference, um, uh, including experiments, uh, field experiments, uh, and, and what we term quasi-experiments, uh, those, those studies that, that use, uh, for example, treatment and control groups or sharp discontinuities in legal, uh, in legal rules um, and the like. To start with experiments, um, one of the best-known experimental studies in law and economics uh, was of the foundational idea of the Coase theorem. Now, Dean Miles um, has already said that the Coase theorem is familiar to every law student at the University of Chicago, so I will not bother to, to, to explain what it is. Um, uh, the, the, this experimental study was uh, by Hoffman and uh, the pioneering experimental study was by Hoffman and Spitzer uh, in 1982, and uh, what they did was to um, was to have experimental subjects play uh, either the role of a controller, um, person A, or and a second uh, second party, person B, um, where the controller chooses the level of an activity. For example, the number of head of cattle in Coase's famous parable of the farmer and the rancher. Um, but of course, of course they, they can bargain. And so uh, what uh, Hoffman and Spitzer tested was whether, uh, whether the parties achieved the efficient outcome through bargaining. Um, and a quick glance at this table will, will, uh, will uh, tell you that, that the efficient outcome here is this. And indeed, parties do achieve the, uh, achieve the efficient outcome. Um, uh, uh, as uh, Hoffman and Spitzer found. However, they also found something a little bit more puzzling from the perspective of uh, the law and economics, uh, which was that the, the most common pattern of payoffs that parties agreed to was 7 to A and 7 to B. Now, of course, um, if, we look at, if we look back to this table, uh, we'll see that if, if A were to simply walk away from the, uh, from the bargaining table, A could ensure a payoff of 11. So we would think that um, that the bargaining outcome should give A at least, um, at least 11, but that wasn't how these experimental subjects uh, seemed to behave. 
So <clears throat> moving now to, to field experiments. Um, field experiments are um, <clears throat> uh, uh, studies that use randomization to generate treatment and control groups, um, but are conducted in the real world rather than in the laboratory. Uh, <clears throat> so one particularly important line of, of work uh, using field experiments uh, uses um, uh, seeks, uh, uses um, matched pairs of testers or auditors to measure the prevalence of discrimination in society. Uh, while this is not directly a legal question, it is, of course, very relevant to how we think about uh, anti-discrimination law. Uh, the, the pioneering study in this area was by Ian Ayers and Peter Siegelman. Uh, their study on fair driving involved uh, dispatching 300 different pairs of matched testers to car dealerships where they negotiated over the price of a new car. And um, these testers varied by race and gender. Uh, and here, here's, a, here's one, of their, uh, one of their tables, uh, which shows that um, in 85% of the outcomes, the African-American tester uh, ended up with a worse outcome. Um, now, these types of studies uh, have, become, uh, have become much more widespread, but one challenge they face is that it's very difficult to ensure that testers are completely identical apart from their race or gender. Uh, the testers' own knowledge of the, of the study that they're engaged in may affect the results. So subsequent work in this area has tried to minimize or eliminate the, the role of the, of the, of the tester. Uh, for instance, um, Marianne Bertrand of the uh, Booth School of Business across the Midway, um, in collaboration with Sandal Mullainathan of, of Harvard, um, sent out identical resumes, with, uh, with some, of, some of which um, randomly uh, were assigned um, distinctively African-American names, such as Lakeisha and Jamal. Um, and what they found was that the, the, those, the resumes with those names uh, had a 50% lower callback rate. So um, the answer to the question they posed in their title, are Emily and Greg more employable, um, appears to be, to be uh, yes. Um, and um, finally, um, Doliak and, and Stein, in a, in a more recent study uh, called The Visible Hand, um, went even further in reducing the, the, the role of testers. Uh, they, they sold iPods over the internet, and um, uh, so they varied randomly whether the iPods were, were uh, pictured uh, held by, by light-colored or dark-colored hands as follows. Oh, I'm sorry. I, it was um, supposed to be a picture of that, but I, um, it didn't appear. But the, so the iPods held by, by dark hands received offers that were 12% lower. Um, the, um, the, the, the sale of iPods over the Internet uh, has become something of a, of a cottage industry among empirical scholars. Uh, so um, Yair Listokin of Yale uh, uses a similar technique to explore a fundamental question in contracts. Um, whether, uh, so how do contracting parties uh, interpret con uh, contractual silence, which obviously has implications for whether the default rules of contract law are majoritarian. So what he did was to sell um, Apple I iPods on eBay and randomly varied the warranty terms. So this is a this picture did come out. So this this picture this is a picture of an uh, Apple iPod Nano, um, and so uh, Listerkin 
randomly varied the, the, the warranty terms um, in, with these, these various options, uh, or he, he um, maintained silence about the, the, the um, warranty terms, which of course leads to the, uh, or entails the, the, the contract law default, which is the explicit warranty of merchantability would, um, would prevail. Um, so he was, and he tested uh, how, the pr how the price of, of these Apple iPod Nanos varied by the, uh, the warranty term or, or silence. Um, encouragingly, he found that uh, a silent iPod sell, sold for about the same price as one with, which explicitly specified the contract law default. So um, <clears throat> finally, let's turn to quasi-experiments. Um, and starting, let's start with the topic of corporate governance, which is um, a major area of scholarship across a number of disciplines and has become a major area of focus within law and economics. Um, in um, its survey by um, Atanasov and Black um, <clears throat> of, um, of corporate governance research um, a couple of years ago, uh, the authors identified 863 empirical studies in major journals over this uh, period uh, from 2001 to 2011. Um, methods of causal inference, though, seem to have uh, made only a, a relatively small impact. Um, of these 863 studies, only 75, less than 9%, used what the authors uh, viewed as being credible methods of causal inference. One of these was a study by Black, Jang, and Kim um, in the Journal of Law, Economics, and Organization in 2006. And what they did was to use a uh, law in, in Korea that created a sharp discontinuity in the legal requirements um, uh, for firms with assets that exceeded a threshold of two trillion won. Um, and here is a, a picture that, that uh, depicts their findings. Uh, TQ here is Tobin's Q, which is a, a measure of firm value. Um, on, the, on the horizontal axis, we have the, uh, the, the asset size, and the vertical line represents the um, uh, the legal thresholds for the application of these stronger uh, requirements. Um, and what they, what they discovered was that, a, that there was a dis discontinuous jump in firm value uh, at precisely this, uh, this threshold. And they argue that, uh, that um, this, uh, this uh, can be interpreted as a causal impact of uh, these legal requirements on the value of firms. Right, something that would be would in the absence of this type of uh, sharp discontinuity or threshold would be uh, would be a difficult claim to make. Um, along similar lines, in, in work with uh, the same co-author Vic Kana, um, we we studied um, a set of reforms in India known as the Clause Forty Nine reforms, which imposed uh, new requirements uh, for disclosure and board independence, um, and they applied to firms that. Uh, met a size, th uh, essentially a size threshold that was defined in terms of these concepts of paid-up share capital and net worth, which referred to the uh, to the initial uh, capitalization of the firms when they when they went public. Um, and uh, initially, this was a change to the stock exchange listing agreement, and the penalty was merely delisting from the exchange. Subsequently, however, in 2004, Parliament enacted severe penalties 
uh, including criminal penalties for violations, as is known as Section 23E. Um, and so we, here we are comparing the, um, the, um, the value of uh, the average value of firms affected by these reforms, uh, the solid blue line with the dashed maroon line, which is the value of firms that are, that are unaffected by the reforms. And we see that in two, 2004, at the time of the enactment of the severe penalties, we see uh, an increase in the, in the relative value of affected firms. Um, <clears throat> we also see here um, a discontinuous jump in firm value at uh, one of these, uh, at, at the, at the uh, net worth threshold, um, suggesting again the causal impacts of these, of these legal reforms on, on the value of firms. Um, moving to, to a rather different area, um, there is a large body of empirical work in, in public finance or public economics that analyzes responses to taxation. Typically, this work uses uh, changes in tax rates um, as, as a source of variation. Um, however, there are other features of tax law that can also help us uh, provide, uh, generate credible empirical estimates. Um, for instance, in my work with Foley and Forbes, on the um, on, a, on uh, multinational firms, and in my work with Besai on the effects of uh, dividend taxation on on investment, which I will talk about very very briefly um, uh, now. So in that study, um, uh, we we used a, a 2003 uh, law enacted by Congress, uh, which reduced the tax rate on dividends from uh, the, 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 the on dividends received by U.S. individuals from about 40 percent to 15% for dividends that were received from US corporations or from foreign corporations that qualified for this treatment uh, based primarily on whether there was a tax treaty between the United States and the country of domicile of the foreign corporation. Um, to the Konyoshenti, this law was known as JUGTRA, um, and its full name was the Jobs and Growth Tax Relief Reconciliation Act. So once again, we see Congress following its tradition of uh, putting all of these uh, politically popular things, jobs, growth, and tax relief, all in, all in one, on the title of one, uh, one piece of legislation. So this is a very successful naming effort by, uh, by Congress. Um, here, dividends from non-treaty countries, countries without a tax treaty with the U.S., were unaffected, and so investment in these countries serves as a control. Um, and what we find is um, that U.S., investment did indeed uh, increase uh, both absolutely and relative to the control uh, in treaty countries after uh, this law was enacted uh, in, in the post-Jagtra period. Uh, now, one concern here is that it is quite possible that, um, th that there was a pre-existing trend uh, towards greater investment over time in treaty countries. Um, so to investigate that, we look at the fraction of U.S. investment um, that is equ of equity foreign portfolio investment, to be precise, but uh, the, the, uh, the type of investment that we're interested in, um, the, the fraction of that investment that, that is in treaty countries. And it turns out that that was generally uh, declining over time, except when this law was enacted. So that suggests that pre-existing trends are unlikely to explain uh, this, this finding um, and this, uh, this also illustrates a, a much more general point about this type of, uh, this type of research, uh, which is that causal inference requires typically that 
treatment and control groups experienced the same uh, or experienced parallel trends prior to the change in the law. Um, otherwise, uh, there are differing pre-existing trends that cast doubt on uh, the, the causal uh, impact of the law. Um, so um, now that that is generally true. However, as our very own Professor Milani has has argued uh, in uh, work with Julian Reif on tort reform, it is possible that that um, what looked like pre-existing trends may actually uh, represent the anticipation of the reform. So let me give you an example on the vertical axis here. And Professor Milani may, can correct me if, I, if I'm wrong here, but um, the, um, on the vertical axis, we have a measure of the supply of physicians in a state, and uh, on, the, on the horizontal axis, uh, the number of years relative to adoption of tort reform by a state. And it looks like um, in the, that there is a pre-existing trend in the uh, year before the, uh, the reform is adopted. But um, Milani and Reif argue convincingly that uh, this is actually due to physicians' anticipation of tort reform. So they start moving into a state uh, in the year prior to, to the reform being, uh, being enacted. Okay, so <clears throat> let me... Um, let me briefly note um, another very important strand of quasi-experimental research in law and economics uh, which uses the random assignment of judges to federal appellate panels as a source of variation. Since this is, this is uh, arguably random, uh, although, the, uh, say, Professor Chilton has, has, um, has some work um, uh, investigating the, the extent of randomization further, uh, but the, the general view is that this is, this is random, randomly assigned, and so we, we can... Uh, view that as quasi-experimental variation. Um, this literature has found a number of um, uh, intriguing results, one of which is about peer effects on judicial behavior, where um, uh, the composition of the panel um, affects how judges vote. Um, so one possible explanation for the existence of peer effects is that there may be a more deliberation in panels that are heterogeneous in terms of the party of the appointing president. Um, so our very own Dean Miles has investigated this question further. Um, uh, and so his argument is that if peer effects are indeed due to uh, increased deliberation, then mixed panels, panel panels that are heterogeneous in terms of the party of the appointing president, should take longer um, to, to, to render their decisions. However, he finds no evidence of, of any difference in the speed of decisions. Um, more, so, more recently, um, or even more recently, I should say, uh, Daniel Chen and Susan Yeo have used um, the random assignment of judges to, uh, to um, study the, the, the uh, <coughs> drift of take, uh, or changes across different circuits in takings doctrine over time. Uh, and their argument is that uh, since this is generated by random assignment of, of judges to panels, uh, that it can arguably be viewed as quasi-experimental, and they study the, the impact of changes in takings law uh, and, the, and, the, and ex particular expansions in, in government's um, eminent domain powers on a variety of different outcomes. Uh, they find higher economic growth and property values 
define adverse effects on, on minorities. Uh, so uh, this, is a, this has been a very, uh, very quick um, tour through, through the field of um, quasi-experimental study and, and causal inference in law and economics. Uh, so I want, to, I want to conclude with a few thoughts. Um, the first, uh, I think, most important point is that recent developments in empirical scholarship have, uh, I think, greatly enhanced the credibility of the findings of empirical law and economic scholars. Um, this is a uh, this is, I think, important for law and economics itself. But it, but um, law and economics also plays a, a very important role in uh, in this credibility revolution because so much of these uh, quasi, so many of these quasi experiments. Uh, come from, from uh, variations in the law. Um, and uh, I think what this suggests is that law and economic scholarship will uh, continue to move, um, as, it, as it increasingly has, in an empirical direction. Um, and uh, one might hope, at least, that this holds out the promise, on the one hand, of, of greater influence on policymaking. Um, if, if we can provide uh, more credible estimates and uh, of, of uh, empirical effects and and uh, do so in a more unified way uh, as opposed to having various conflicting findings then perhaps um, uh, policymakers will listen more carefully uh, however one should be uh, one should be cautious about being overly optimistic on, on that score um, after all we live in an era when populist politicians seem to believe that they, they know more about climate science than do than do climate scientists um, <clears throat> secondly, um, there's, there's this um, growing concern that, that legal scholarship um, has become increasingly interdisciplinary and uh, to that extent has less to say to practicing lawyers than it, than it did in the past. Um, one, uh, one possibility for, for, of, of empirical scholarship, I believe, is that, especially where it uses credible methods of causal inference, uh, th that um, Interdisciplinary scholarship that is empirical can perhaps be of greater relevance to practitioners as well um, by uh, telling practitioners something something concrete about the, the world that is relevant to the, to the law. Um, this is, of course, especially the case when doctrinal questions uh, turn on empirical um, on empirical issues. But uh, perhaps it's also true more broadly. Um, at least that uh, that is my my hope. Um, and, and so let me let me end there. And I welcome uh, any questions.
Right. So that's uh, that's a very very interesting question. Is essentially uh, pointing to this this problem of the of the drunk looking for the keys under the lamppost, uh, since that's where the light is. Um, and I would say um, I would say that um, there is there is very much a, a danger uh, of focusing on those questions that can be uh, those, those narrower questions that can be answered through through quasi experiments or experiments as opposed to perhaps the bigger questions that uh, that cannot be answered using using those methods. Um, on the other hand, I, I would also say though that um, uh, that about so outside of the context where we we are fortunate enough to have quasi experiments, um, there isn't really very much that we can we can say in a credible way. So um, I think the the answer to that is to to acknowledge that that where there are no uh, the, there are no quasi experiments, we don't know very much, right? But but we whether or not we we study the areas that uh, that where we are fortunate enough to to find quasi experiments, for those other areas we're not going to know very much. So we should try to find out as much as we can about those those settings where uh, where we we do we, we can do call, uh, credible causal inference, uh, but we shouldn't claim too much um, uh, in terms of extrapolating to those those other settings. Um, Simone. <laughs> I 
Right. So the two two great points. So the first one, I I completely agree with you about economic versus statistical significance, or uh, I suppose or more broadly, sort of economic or social significance or financial or whatever the um, issue is. Uh, I I would say though that that one of the consequences of this credibility revolution is that with stronger empirical designs, um, it is. The, um, the, it is possible to, 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 to place more weight on the magnitudes that one finds. Um, it is now possible, so it used to be, uh, it used to be that researchers who found null results um, would, uh, would give up at that point because they, they wouldn't be able to publish their, their findings. Um, but nowadays, if you have a strong design, then you can, uh, and you find a, a, a very small effect, but a very precise small effect. I think um, that that is much easier to communicate to others um, and to uh, perhaps to, to policymakers as well. So I, I certainly agree with that. Now I, I tend to be um, a little skeptical of policymakers' interest in, in a lot of this uh, of this work, but um, uh, but I, I agree with the general point that we should focus on these magnitudes a lot more than we than we do. Um, the the um, the rise of larger data sets has also made. Uh, the issue of the issue that you highlight um, of statistical significance a little bit less uh, critical in the sense that with a large enough data set you can get statistical significance um, and the, the the entire the, the entire question in effect is really about the magnitude um, your, your second point is about this the, this negative externality of the rise of empirical law and economics on the theorists um, and we we very much um, uh, honor the, the theorists you know without theory there would be no uh, no um, framework to guide empirical work. Um, but having said that, um, uh, one, of, uh, one point to, to bear in mind is that, um, that in physics, which we, we all view as a very mature science, consists mostly of experimentalists of, or of empiricists, with only a very small fraction of, of, people, of uh, physicists engaged in, in theoretical research. Um, so there, there is a view uh, which I don't necessarily endorse, that, that uh, a movement towards empiricism is actually a sign of the maturity of a field. Um, but having said that, uh, I, I fully recognize the, the importance of continuing to foster uh, a certain amount of theoretical research. Dean Miles?
Right. So, so let me start with the start with the first question, uh, which is you, know, you talked about the, the sources of the of the credibility revolution, um, and the relationship between law and between empirical law and economics and empirical legal studies. Um, I would see, um, and, and as you say, they, they they historically arose from different sources. Uh, one could view empirical law and economics as importing um, techniques from um, from um, adjacent areas of, uh, from applied areas of economics, uh, and empirical legal studies is a quite quite different origin, um, starting with the, the the empirical study of, of the courts, and is if anything more related to other certain other social sciences such as uh, political science or sociology. Um, so I would I would say firstly though that that empirical methods are empirical methods, and that they, they need not be tied to any particular discipline. So we, um, and, I, and I think that's also somewhat true of credibility in, in empirical research, uh, that the standards for credibility are, should, be, should be fairly common across different disciplines. Um, it's, it's the theoretical frameworks, going back to a um, theme that Simone raised, uh, that, that differ across these, these different, um, different disciplinary backgrounds. Um, so I would view empirical law and economics as uh, perhaps a subset of the broader field of, of empirical legal studies. Uh, although empirical legal studies is not so much a, a field as, a, as, a, as an approach. To, uh, you know, so, and, uh, however, empirical legal studies is linked to, the, to, to theoretical law and economics in a way that, of course, the rest of empirical legal studies is not. Um, so I think that's how I would characterize uh, the two of them. And, and the second point is about um, uh, Credibility, even in a setting where there's uh, there's this um, this well-developed tradition of, of uh, experiments, and, and laboratory experiments, um, and, the, and the issue of replicability. This is something that's of particular concern to me as a as a uh, someone who has just uh, begun editing a journal. Uh, so one of the uh, approaches that has developed um, both, I think, in economics generally and in law and economics is the, the increased sharing of data. Uh, so it, it used to be the case that you know, people would, uh, would have their data sets and um, they would publish their, their findings and, and the data set wouldn't necessarily be accessible to anyone else. Um, today, journals are increasingly demanding, uh, requesting or demand, demand some, somewhere on that spectrum uh, that um, those who publish in the journal make available their data sets to be placed online um, and to be made readily available to others who wish to replicate their findings. Uh, so I think that's one response uh, to, um, to that, that set of concerns. Um, so um, just at the back, um, Adam.
Right. Well, um, so so we're on the horns of a of a dilemma there. Now, now I, I agree with you know, the point you made um, at the beginning that that law strives for uniformity, but of course uh, it often has um, uh, some sort of de minimis threshold, and that's what uh, in some of the studies that I described try to exploit. Uh, it gives uh, that kind of variation exists, even though everyone has has you know, perfectly clear notice about which. Uh, which group they, they fall into. Um, now, as to your, to your primary question, um, I, I think there is a danger of, of um, idiosyncratic research designs, or at least uh, research designs that pertain to idiosyncratic contexts. Um, and then it seems like, like the, the, we have a choice between saying something fairly credible about some very idiosyncratic um, setting as opposed to saying something Rather incredible about uh, a more important question, um, and that's that's a very challenging you know, dilemma to, to have. Um, but I think Adam uh, just pointed to to one to one way out of this, which is to design social experiments, uh, to design our, our own variation. Um, now, in in certain areas of economics, like development economics, uh, randomized controlled trials have become uh, commonplace. Um, uh, but I think the I think that doesn't completely deal with this challenge of the um, uh, of the idiosyncratic context because it's easier to design randomized control trials in certain settings than in others, and to deal with um, what you might call lower stakes questions that policymakers are willing to let you vary, as opposed to larger stakes questions that um, that they are they are less willing to have you have you interfere with. Um, uh, so I think there is, that danger still exists, but but I do uh, I do think that uh, it's the, it's it's probably the, the, the future direction is probably the, the 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 second one, which is to try to design our own variation to, to an increasing extent, uh, and we see that um, emerging in a number of in a number of fields. Um, so, Martha. Right. No, absolutely. So, the, 
as an empiricist, I, I would say that there are, there are more things on heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Um, I, and, and I f fully agree that there are, there are these other moods of humanistic inquiry, of, of, of introspection, um, and, um, and so forth, that, that um, tell us very, very important things. Indeed, indeed. Absolutely. So, so there's, there's a lot that we can learn um, about, about uh, the world through, through, through these methods. Um, I, I have focused uh, more specifically on uh, what we might call how, questions of how much. Right? How do we trade off one thing against another? How, how, much, how much will behavior change if we change this, um, uh, this set of incentives? And, and I think those questions, uh, and, and the, there, was no, there was no attempt to, to, to suggest that those are the, the most important questions, necessarily, but, but they are a, an important set of questions. Um, and I think this, uh, this talk has, has been very much about how we can answer questions of how much. Um, Right. Now, those, those are those are great points. I I would say that the um, the your concern about ideology or politics um, would be even more serious in the absence of a credibility revolution. Um, that is, if we didn't have um, widespread agreement as to what was a a um, a quasi experiment, then people are, have even greater leeway to to find uh, results that are consistent with their with their priors. Um, now, having said that, I think um, the growing, the, the, what the credibility revolution does is it, it does provide a way to um, decouple the, the ideologies of researchers from, um, from their findings. Um, I think at least in combination with certain other developments, such as the uh, increasing uh, 
posting of data online, which allows others to, to replicate findings and perhaps to, to uh, find, to, to um, reveal the, the fragility of results. Um, one, one, um, suggestion, one, one important new innovation in this area um, uh, is by, uh, by Ben Shahar and Chilton, uh, who have, uh, who have uh, proposed the idea that researchers should, uh, before they, they collect their data, should submit, should, should reveal to the, the scholarly community um, the, the, their, their methods and um, uh, before, so in advance of any findings. Um, and then uh, when, so and, and in fact you have, you have done this with, with an experimental study. Um, so I think that's, that's one, one possible approach to, to take. Um, I, your point about null results, I think, is also valid, but I, I, do, I, think, the, I think the situation was even worse prior to, um, prior to the credibility revolution. Um, so as I said in response to Simone, uh, when one has a credible design, it is easier to, to um, publish a null result as long as it's reasonably precise uh, because they... The design is strong enough that, that a null result really means a null result. Um, so I, I recognize that these are, these are all you know, very, very significant problems. Um, my rather modest claim is, is merely that the credibility revolution makes, um, uh, makes some progress in, in addressing them, not that, it, not that it solves them completely. Yes? Oh, ab absolutely. Well, there, there's, a, there's a number of um, very important um, studies that you might that use uh, participant observation or various qualitative methods, interviews, and so forth, that have been extremely influential in law and economics. Uh, I would uh, cite, you know, firstly, um, Bob Ellickson's "The Cost of Cows and Sorry of, of Cows and Cattle," where he he essentially used anthropological methods. Um, there's um, studies of um, you might be familiar with study of, of stand-up comics. You know why 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 do we see so many stand-up comics despite the lack of uh, intellectual property rights and in um, jokes. So so, so I think um, quali I have not talked about qualitative methods um, mostly because I I am not uh, particularly adept at them. Um, but that's not not to say that they they cannot make a valuable contribution. Uh, it's more of a, a, my shortcoming rather than. Well, I think that that's a question of judgment, and it depends on how how far away you stand. Um, it is entirely possible to um, to view all of these developments that I talked about uh, as as being an, uh, as being more evolution than revolution. Um, but um, but 
the, so and I, and to be to be honest, I, I borrowed the the term credibility revolution from uh, Angustin Fischke. Um, I, I I think that the claim is that um, the um, there there was a qualitative transformation um, prior to to this um, set of developments, right? This, this uh, alleged revolution. Um, there was a steady progression of uh, to, towards greater statistical complexity uh, and, and the use of more and more sophisticated statistical methods. Um, the credibility revolution was was different in that it's a fundamental change in focus from uh, statistical theory to um, to looking carefully at, at variation in the real world, um, and so it was uh, in in a way it was a um, it was it was turning away from the the prior path of development. Uh, so I think that that's a sense in which it was a, a break from the past. Um, but I think one can one can view many of these many of these developments as, as being incremental as well. So please. Uh... Join me in thanking Professor Dr. Paula, and please join us for a session. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.